The panel, RNZ National. To this, what people should expect with the change in government regards the country's fiscal outlook? How much of a difference is there between administrations in the wake of the budget 2023's increase in government spending? The new government will inherit a stimulatory fiscal outlook through to mid-2024, says commentators. Uh, Meanwhile, there is little relief for Kiwis struggling to make ends meet with high petrol prices continuing to lift inflation. However, consumer prices rose a less than expected 1.8% in the three months ended into September. The annual inflation rate eased to 5.6%, a two-year low. With us is Cameron Bagri from Bagri Economics. Kia ora, Cameron. Uh, good afternoon. Yeah, first, how do you read these inflation figures? Well, they were better than expected, but <clears throat> excuse me, but a headline inflation rate of 5.6%. Is still a long way away from 2%, which is where the Reserve Bank desires it to be. If you look at what's called non-tradable domestic inflation, it still came through pretty brisk at 6.3% up on 12 months ago. So we'll, we'll take the positive that headline inflation is moving down, but it's still a long way away from where we actually want it to be. Just to, these, um, to this, this, this subject here, the, the change in government, on paper... Is there a huge difference between governments? I mean, both singled, signalled rather, a return to surplus in the 2026-27 fiscal year, I understand. Yeah, well, both of them put down fiscal plans ahead of the election and good on both of them for doing that. And both of them detailed fiscal plans that are possible. Now, possible should not be mixed up with what I would call highly probable, because what we've got at the moment is a real delicate balancing act. Right. It's certainly possible if you have really tight spending restraint over the coming few years to go from a large deficit to surplus by 2026-27, 2027-28. But the sacrificial pawn in regard to achieving that is going to be some incredibly tight spending assumptions that their treasurer within their pre-election economic and fiscal update basically said that the fiscal assumptions for upcoming budgets were sufficient to fund critical service growth alone. Uh, so there's not a lot of wriggle room for mm. other discretionary spend. So both the political parties, whoever won the election, and we know obviously know which one has won, they are facing a very delicate balancing act going forward between fiscal responsibility and you know, going to surplus versus critical spending demands, which is suggesting we could be in deficit for a while. Mm, you want to kick off, Connor? Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess there's risk to our revenue, you know, tax revenue, isn't there? And we've seen that already in the last 12 months where company tax rates, uh, tax revenue, sorry, was down quite a lot. And, you know, there's a big margin squeeze out there. And you look at our ag sector, it's under, you know, a bit of pressure, uh, as are other parts of the economy. So it's very easy to see some uh, downside risk on the revenue side of it. On the expenditure side of it, well, uh, I mean, you've got a philosophical difference between the two parties, haven't you, where, where the outgoing government are saying, you know, here's all these ways we're, we're giving money to you and the incoming government are saying, well, you, we'll give your money back to you or we won't take it off you and you spend it how you how you like. But, you know, with 100,000 new people turned up in this country, it's hard to see how, you know, sort of core government expenditure for core services right. is going to reduce, you know, irrespective of whatever uh, state sector oh, reforms there might be or, you know, downsizing or yeah, right-sizing interesting point or whatever. Cameron. I'll just let Sarah come, come in and then respond to both. Sarah. Yeah, I'm, I was reflecting about the 
the tax intake, the tax revenue issue. And I was thinking about uh, why we haven't got an empty house tax. Other countries do, just as another option. What do you think about that, Cameron? To to be able, because it is a very, it's like a, it's a very complex. Uh, quagmire at the moment of, of balancing what the future needs are with government spend, but also what the intakes is and and election promises as well. Can you respond to both there, Cameron? Yeah, well, I guess the important word there was yeah, balance, because what we are is facing tremendous pressure. Look, people naturally want to keep more of their hard-earned vote. You know, it's called the... You know, returns to work, you know, and people should be allowed to keep more of that as opposed to less. But what we also know is that we've got critical government services, whether you look at the need for funding health care, defence, police, law and order, criminal justice, education. There's a lot of real pressures there. And maybe reallocating spending is going to solve a, a few of those problems, I, I suspect, there's a lot of bit of truth in both. We're going to need to spend a bit of money, but also reallocate money on the other side. But even if you step away from the next two to three years' pressures, if you step back and look at the fiscal impact of an ageing population and what that means for superannuation expenditure, healthcare expenditure, yeah, you need to have a really thriving economy to be able to justify the spend on the other side. Otherwise, borrowing goes up or otherwise taxes go up. So yeah, I think we are moving into an era we were going to need more revenue. Now, the question is, mm. where does that revenue come from? It'll be interesting to see... Superannuation uh, settings change. Well, it'll be interesting to see what happens in the coalition um, negotiations around, um, you know, the the, the age of uh, eligibility for superannuation around, you know, timing of tax we're, cuts. We'll have to come back and return to this. That's a very mm. interesting topic, isn't it? Sort of, we need more revenue... Um, yeah, and I, I mean, getting back to the empty houses thing, I mean, the stats are that we've got 95,000 dwellings that are considered empty, and that was in 2018 in New Zealand. And they're just sitting there idle, and it, it, it just seems to me like if you're running a company business and you want to open up a new revenue stream, that is a potential opportunity. Looking at all, the, not ruling anything out here on the panel, Cameron. I know that Vancouver, for example, they put a um, 3%. If your house is empty, they charge a 3%. That's right. So, um, and apparently it does pretty well. Well, once again, I step back and, you know, I think there's going to be more need for revenue over the next 10 years. Right. You know, some sort of empty house tax would not be the first port of call. In fact, I think it would be well down the list, but the bigger picture is that to make the numbers stack up, make sure debt doesn't keep going up, make right. sure we're delivering government services. Um, yeah, we want to provide a little bit of tax relief in the form of not necessarily tax rate reductions, but certainly removing the impact of the tax fee as you move up, inflation pushes you up into a higher tax bracket. We want to take care of that. But it's very difficult to make the numbers stack up. So as Treasury mm. pointed out in the pre-election fiscal update. There's a whole lot of trade-offs ahead. Isn't, isn't, isn't part of it, though, that we've got to get a growing economy and improve our productivity? I mean, if we just sit in stagnant uh, economy, it's going to be very hard uh, for everyone. Uh, but if you can get some progress on productivity, which we're not very good at doing, uh, and, and growth, which has been a bit, uh, despite the massive fiscal stimulus and the massive monetary stimulus, hasn't been that flash. 
isn't isn't that part of uh, you know? Well, that's a challenge for a new government, Just isn't it? A brief Just response, to, Cameron. Yeah, well, there's, I guess you you got to separate out near-term growth from medium-term growth. In, in the near term, prospects for the economy are linked to inflation, and inflation's too hot. So if inflation's too hot, the way you get rid of inflation is the economy's got to be cold. So we're going to go through a period of underperformance, weakness over the coming two years. That's the basic disinflation playbook. Yeah, the, the stuff you alluded to, Connor, is more medium-term productivity mm-hmm. growth. Um, and what we have seen, though, to be fair, across successive governments, and we're doing it again now, is that when going gets tough, we reach for the early easy lever, which is migration, no. which is a bums-on-seats economic model, and that's not going to be self-sustaining over the long term. Very good. Cameron, kia ora. As always, Cameron Bagri there from Bagri Economics. Now, meanwhile, uh, yeah, now now we've got quite a response regarding uh, stain removal uh, hacks. Uh, <laughs> yeah, handy Andy on any organic stain, whitening toothpaste, plastered onto stains, leave a while. I learned this when doing my own hair. Bar soap and lukewarm water for blood stains. Uh, Paul says sodium bicarbonate and vinegar, it's drivel doesn't work. To this, a word on this, I find this interesting. We have touched on this a few months ago, but the issue of what's known as unconscious bias has reared its head in the World Cup. Uh, Wasir Naivalevu, the Fiji captain, claimed there is absolutely unconscious bias against Pacific Island nations from referees at the World Cup after England reached the semi-final with a 30-24 win over his team. Samoan coach made a similar suggestion after an 1817 loss to England. And someone who's previously written on unconscious bias in sport and has a bit of an interest in it is uh, Professor of Philosophy Tim Dare at Auckland University. Professor Dare, good to have you back on this. Thanks, thank you very much. Nice to be here. Yeah, so first up, um, and explain what is unconscious bias? So it's the, the tendency to um, notice or give higher value to evidence which confirms a view you already hold. Um, so that's why it's called confirmation bias. So you have some view, um, a bunch of evidence is presented to you, um, uh, you notice evidence which supports your view, and you tend to discount um, or, or devalue or undervalue evidence which doesn't, doesn't support it. Um, so it's, ab- it's absolutely um, uh, uncontroversial that, it's a, that, that humans use it in reasoning, yeah. and there are pretty good reasons. It's efficient. Um, you know, it allows us to hold on to views we have. We don't need to sort through all the evidence. And so, so, so that, that's what it is. Um, uh, and, and that's what I take it the, these people are suggesting they're seeing. That's right. All right. Um, Sarah? Uh, thank you, Professor. Uh, I was actually reading about the Norwegian research into this that was confirming that there is ref- referee bias in professional football. Um, and basically they were saying that successful teams are more likely to receive an incorrect penalty compared to the opponents and less likely to be denied a penalty. So in terms of this um, scenario, what impact do you think the home crowd have on the referee? Oh, that's interesting. Um, so so uh, um, uh, COVID provided this wonderful natural experiment um, here which allowed us to test this because we played games or games were played in um, empty stadiums. And what is clear is that um, that home crowds are a very significant 
factor in, in refereeing decisions. Um, now, what just how home crowd advantage um, uh, connects with unconscious bias um, ne- needs a bit of work because um, it could be a separate um, source of bias. And, and one, one thing to, that's important to see is that not all refereeing mistakes are unconscious bias, so they're not the thing I was talking about. And, and just referees being a little um, um, you know, sensitive to home crowd noise needn't be uh, refereeing bias. That might be uh, the uh, unconscious bias. That might be referees when the crowd is screaming that the pass was forward, um, they look um, uh, at it, whereas without the crowd, they just would never have checked. So that right. may, may be connected and maybe not. Kind of. Uh, well, look, I, I agree that Wayne Barnes has definitely got some unconscious bias against the All Blacks. <coughs> he did it to us uh, when we played France, and he tried it again uh, against the Irish. I just couldn't believe that he, like, I like the Irish rugby team, uh, you know, uh, and I'm a you know big supporter of them behind the All Blacks. Uh, but I thought he overlooked some absolute certain uh, penalties against the Irish. The two yellow cards were very, very dubious. Uh, so um, I think as a concept, it's absolutely uh, in existence, and I'm hoping like heck that he isn't going to be part of um, any games that the All Blacks play in uh, the rest of the cup. <laughs> so yeah, just just bear. It. So, so so again, you know, if we're talking about this specific phenomenon of unconscious bias, what you'd think has to go on is that Barnes has some set of views um, mm. about the All Blacks. You know, their tendency to to cheat or or their their um, uh, some some pre-existing set of beliefs which lead him to take a certain view. Mm. So my own view is that over the years, I don't know about Wayne Barnes. Um, um, I mean, I have to, I share your view about the the fourth <laughs> half of the French paper, but but my own view is that the All Blacks have done pretty well out of unconscious bias because I think um, teams which um, and and this is coming back to the point about you know teams which are expected to win. Teams which are perceived to be, um, you know, highly skilled and very likely to win, when the referee some, sees something which is marginal, they're inclined to think, oh, you know, um, Richie McCaw probably did pull that off, or um, uh, that probably wasn't part. Oh, I see. So dominant, dominant teams, yeah, dominant players t- uh, have calls go their way or tend to. One final yeah, question. Right. Yeah. One final yeah. question, Sarah. Well, this is a tricky one, but I thought I'd address the elephant in the room, given the fact that it was the Fijians calling out the French. Is there any research, or do you know if there's an impact of the colonial past on bias? Well, there there likely is. Now, whether it whether that's so, so there are lots of kinds of bias, and um, you know, there's just old-fashioned um, uh, racial ethnic bias, of course, and and you know. Without suggesting that's what's going on here, but um, uh, what might be happening is that there's a there's a perception that the island teams are less mm. or, or the minority teams are less skilled, and so they they think they're more clumsy and so on, um, and more likely to be knocking the ball on or, or what have you. Um, whereas you know the English um, forwards reaching around the side of the ruck and grab the ball. They think, oh, you know, that's an extraordinary skilled player, and look, he's managed to pull that's that amazing. off. It's such an interesting topic. <laughs> uh, just it's just, it's, I would love to yeah, keep yeah. on. I'd love to keep on talking. We might have to have a part two as this pro- yep. progresses. <laughs> but, um, but for now, Kira, I appreciate your time. 
Thank you very much. That's Professor of Philosophy Tim Dare at Auckland University. Someone said, oh, yeah, says, well said, Connor. Barnes refereed a terrible game against uh, the Irish. Finally on the programme, this really caught my attention as a person who loves uh, a bit of good design. Ringo Starr had one, so perhaps did you call older cousin the iconic lava lamp. Turned 60, invented by the eccentric Edward Craven Walker. The special wax mixture was kept secret for quite some time. The original brand, Mathmos, is still making them in a little Dorset factory in the UK. It's that one little factory. The others are knockoffs. Decades on, is the lamp brilliant by design or is it crassly kitsch? With us is design consultant Michael Smythe. Kia ora, Michael. Hello. Okay, so when you go home after a hard day's work, do you pour yourself a glass of lemonade or wine, turn on some Steely Dan, and turn on the lava lamp? Uh, no, I wouldn't put Steely Dan on. I'd put on something much more relaxing. <laughs> I, uh, um, I've never actually had a lava lamp, uh, and I've always thought of it as a rather kitsch contribution to our culture, but um, on reflection, uh, it's... Uh, it's it's not an object; it's a blobject, <laughs> and it uh, and it is a authentic cultural expression mm. of an era that actually Edward Craven Walker was not part of. He wasn't into psychedelia or hippie lifestyle or anything. It just got adopted by by that. He was a naturist, and his initial interest in fluid forms and motion actually involved nudes dancing underwater. Okay, so there's history there. Uh, I didn't yeah. know that, Michael. Yeah, look, I want to ask Colin English, you know, you've come you've come in, the cows have been seen to, the bailing's done, <laughs> you've come in, you put on some eagles, and you... I'm not stereotyping you, by the way. I'm just asking uh, if you have a lava lamp. I'd put on a bit of Caddy Millie or, or yeah. um, Van Morrison or something That's like that. One. I'd probably... Um, well, I don't. I haven't had the experience of a lava lamp, but it sounds something that could be an interesting thing to have an experience with. Such as? Well, I don't know. I don't know. It just sounds that sort of air. It's pretty, uh, pretty chilled. So um, we haven't got one in our house, and I don't think we'll be going out to buy one. Stay there, Michael. Sarah. Well, it just coming out of left left field, Michael. Um, it's it's obviously proven its chops. It's got staying power. Sixty years. Uh, yeah. For mm. yeah, and I. I read astrology charts and I looked at Edwin Craven Walker's astrology chart and his sons in Cancer, which is about home and house, his moon was in the eighth house of Taurus and Taurus is about staying power and solid manifestation. His ascendance in Libra and that's all about beauty. And his Venus is in Gemini, so it's no surprise that he had friends, different friends uh, and different connections through his businesses, especially in the media and music, famous musos. Okay. And his north node was Sag in the third house. So it it was brilliant and it proved to be a long-standing idea. Bringing an astrological lens to you there, (laughs) Michael Smythe. Um, But needless to say, whether you love the lava lamp or not, 60 years on, here we are. And most of us know what it is. Yeah, and that, that's uh, a good thing that they've got staying power because they're actually uh, not recyclable or um, they can be a bit toxic uh, to throw away. So um, having something that um, lasts a long time uh, as a cultural icon um, 
makes it a bit more sustainable. Uh, the question is, is it is it really heirloom material? Yeah. Um, the problem is that uh, you can't say, oh, well, they do consume a lot of energy if you have them on all the time, and yes. they have to be on to work. I guess and, what you're... Uh, I, you can't I, put a LED lamp in because <laughs> create the heat that's required. So you're saying basically at the end of the day, keep it in the conversation pit here. Keep it in the air of shag pile. Bye, Swan. There you go. Yep. 60 years of love. Yep. Kia ora, Michael. Leaving you with a bit of maiden for the maidenheads with us, of which there are quite a few, it seems, with us today. Connor English, Sarah Sparks. Great show. Thank you. I'm Wallace Chapman. Yes. See you tomorrow, 3.45. Lisa Owen and Checkpoint is next.